Well, this morning we get to begin our sermon series on sex. So much fun. I mean, after all, who doesn't like sex? But in all honesty, uh, as you'll see, I am determined to take this topic seriously. I intend to ask questions that probe the truth. And I hope that you can come to these sermons with an open mind and a willingness to see where God is still speaking today. I'm also not surprised we didn't have a children's sermon. I was trying to think of what that children's sermon might be like. (laughs) I'll leave that up to the parents to take care of. I take from my text this morning the 25th verse of the 5th chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Please pray with me. Gracious God, Guide our thinking and our discernment as we grapple with this important topic, that we can be more devoted servants of you and your truth. Amen. One of these things about having a belief in God is that you believe that God is actually present in your life. God shows up in daily existence. Moreover, It's long been stated that God knows what's on our minds and in our hearts. There are no secrets with God. We can have secrets and privacy from others, but not from God. Christians repeat these phrases all the time. And yet, I have to wonder, do these statements apply to our sex lives too? Is God present in our sex lives? From the ways in which churches, especially mainline churches, talk about sex... You would think that God is everywhere except in the bedroom or wherever it is that you like to have sex. (laughs) After all, I've preached on every topic or virtually every topic that I can think of. I've never been shy in taking on certain preaching topics. And yet, in 10 years of being a minister, this is the very first time I've ever preached on sex. But if we want church to be relevant if we think that God is relevant, if we believe God is present in our lived experience, if we believe in a God who is still speaking, then we have to talk about sex. This is particularly important for a relevant faith because we live in a time, in a moment, that is as saturated with sex as any other in recent memory. We all know that advertisers love using sex to sell their products. And we live in a materialist, capitalist society. You turn on the television and you will inevitably see commercials that have beautiful people enjoying one product or another. A beautiful person drives one brand of car. A beautiful person enjoys a type of food or cosmetic product. Every time we see a beautiful person enjoying something, the underlying message, oftentimes not very subtle, is that if you have this product, you will be just like those people. You will somehow be transformed into a beautiful person you will become an object of desire. It's an incredibly powerful form of advertising because it works so effectively on our subconscious. Without even thinking, we are drawn to the product for the simple reason that sex sells. Some advertisers are more explicit about this message than others and have their actors wearing relatively few clothes or sexually alluring clothing. But the message is there either way. It's unavoidable unless you never read magazines, never watch TV, never drive on highways, and never get on the internet. (laughs) This cultural use of sex 
is even more pronounced in our social media world. Instagram and Snapchat are two multi-billion dollar companies whose primary selling point is sex. Snapchat is a phone application that allows you to send pictures to someone else and have those pictures disappear within seconds. It gained popularity because people would send revealing pictures to another person, knowing that those potentially compromising pictures would disappear. Snapchat has broadened its appeal since then, but ask any millennial and they will affirm that sex is a big part of Snapchat's multi-billion dollar industry, multi-billion dollar business. Instagram is perhaps the most popular app on the market today, particularly among young people. Instagram allows you to post pictures of yourself and to follow other accounts, especially celebrities. You can see what your favorite actors and public people are doing and how they look while they're doing it. Not surprisingly, the more attractive a person is, the more Instagram followers they tend to have. Since there are now ways for people to monetize their Instagram popularity, there is strong incentive to include some sexually alluring photos on your profile to boost your number of followers. There's even a term for people who post sexually suggestive photos on Instagram or Twitter. They are called thirst traps, which refers to the capability of eliciting thirst, also known as sexual desire. It's hard to overstate how popular these apps are and how much they are driven by sex and sexual desire. If that wasn't enough, we live in a time that could be termed the golden age of pornography. Never before has it been easier to find a dizzying array of pornography of every imaginable type. I remember reading an article in The Economist on this that stated that the average teenager now at his or her fingertips a range of sexual material that would make even the Emperor Caligula blanch. On top of all this are phone applications designed to facilitate sexual encounters between people. The two most popular are Tinder for straight people and Grindr for gay people, but there are dozens of others. It's difficult to overstate how ubiquitous these apps are. There was a time in the not-too-distant past when finding a sexual partner required a trip to the bar or other social location combined with what we might term as game, i.e. facility at picking someone up. With Tinder and Grindr, it could not be easier. In any major city, nearly any person can set up a sexual liaison in a matter of minutes. It is no wonder that the CDC has reported a record-breaking rise in sexually transmitted infections. People are having more sex with more people now than at any time in the past, with the possible exception of the heyday of sexual liberation in the 1970s. I, unfortunately, was not around to experience that. <laughs> and these sexual encounters are not limited to people, to single people in their 20s. Applications make finding extramarital affairs easier than ever. Viagra and Cialis have helped contribute to a dramatic rise in sexually transmitted infections in retirement communities as well. Quite literally, we are living in as sexually saturated a time as ever before. That's a fact. It affects people across the political and religious spectrum. And yet, in spite of being surrounded by sex all the time, we seem incapable of actually wrestling with its implications. Americans have this deeply tortured relationship with sex. We don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to deal with it or how to think about it or how to think about what might, might be healthy or unhealthy expressions of sexuality. I mean, think back to your first sexual experiences. For most, of, for most of us, that was quite a long time ago. But when I think back to my first sexual experiences in high school, they were filled with shame and judgment and uncertainty. There was this expectation in middle school and high school about what a guy should be doing sexually at a given age. If you were in eighth grade and you'd not made it to first base, that is, had not kissed a girl, you were seen as deficient. 
I remember dating a girl in early high school and doing my darndest to get to first or second base, not because of any sexual desire, but out of, an, but out of the overwhelming need to feel accepted by my peers. The same thing is true today. In spite of all the apps and thirst traps out there, human relationships for teenagers are as confusing as ever before. Some might even claim more so. And yet, how do we talk about them? How do we talk about other common aspects of sexuality? In this day and age, there are plenty of marriages and relationships that are quote-unquote open. That is, the people in the relationship have sex with those who are not their partner. These open relationships often have clear boundaries and communication. This is not adultery or cheating. But these types of relationships are almost never talked about and invariably judged by others. What about various sexual fetishes? Sexual fetishes of one kind or another are incredibly common. Just look at the internet searches across the country. Sexual fetishes are a very human phenomenon. But do we ever talk about them in ways that are not dripping with judgment and shame? And what about those apps like Tinder and Grindr? Several years ago, one of my clergy colleagues posted an article on Facebook that said that LGBT people were coming to church in increasing numbers. With him, I celebrate this. But I also challenged him. Does the church have a theology of Grindr? In New York City alone, there are 500,000 discrete Grindr accounts. Think about that. That means that just about every gay man in New York City has a Grindr account. This is not an uncommon thing. If the, if the church can't talk about where people are in their lives, how can the church hope to be relevant to their lives? So why the silence? We live in a sexually saturated culture. We live in a time of rapidly changing sexual realities. What does the church have to say about all this? What about a progressive church that claims that God is present in all of human life? Does that extend to our sexual lives as well? From the deafening silence on sexual issues, I would say it does not. The church will never be able to reach a new generation of people until we honestly wrestle with sex and sexuality. As uncomfortable as that might be for some of you to hear, that is just a fact. So let me ask you this. What is the Christian view on sex? Here's where we get to the fun part. What is the Christian ethic with regard to sex? Let's say I were to grab a random person on the street, someone who either goes to church or who doesn't. Do you think that person could tell me what Christians believe about sex? I guarantee you they would be able to tell me. The Christian view on sex, at least, as, at least as it's interpreted in our society, is that sex is bad outside a monogamous marriage. Sex outside a marriage is sin. And it should be as vanilla as possible. Period. <laughs> that is the Christian view on sex. And that's the Christian view on sex, regardless of how it, with how it actually lines up with the lived experience of Christians. Now, liberals will often modify this. They will say that sex is okay before marriage, provided you're in a long-term relationship that's headed towards marriage. Now, I've officiated a lot of weddings. Of all the couples whose weddings I've officiated, only one or two did not have sex before marriage. Most of them had sex for the first time shortly after they met, and long, long before they considered themselves in a serious relationship. The common Christian view on sex, even in liberal circles, just plain does not line up with our lived experience. And yet... It's almost never questioned. So where does it come from? Where does this rock-solid belief 
and no sex before marriage come from. Next week, I will look specifically at what the Bible has to say. But the reality is that our views on sex are not fundamentally rooted in the Bible. Most people will claim that without actually having read the Bible very closely or examined its historical context. So where does our accepted Christian sexual ethic come from, if not the Bible? It comes from a long history, a long history in Christianity. And in that history, one person stands out as the most significant, the most influential. That one person is Augustine of Hippo. Augustine of Hippo, often called St. Augustine, was a bishop in North Africa who lived from 354 to 430 AD. In the Catholic tradition, Augustine is called a doctor of the church. That is, his writings have been enshrined as some of the most learned and most insightful in Christian history. Augustine has been taught continuously from his day to the present, and he is one of the few Christian scholars respected by both Protestants and Catholics alike. Augustine was a prolific writer and a landmark figure in the Western Christian tradition. He wrote the first book on preaching and an influential text on the Trinity. But his two most famous works, the works that are read most often today, are his spiritual autobiography called The Confessions and his magnum opus, The City of God. Both of these works have a lot to say about sex and how they frame sex and sexuality has become the norm in the Western Christian tradition. In Confessions, Augustine tells his own journey from self-described libertine to ascetic bishop. He also talks about his philosophical and theological influences. Augustine was a big believer in Neoplatonism, the philosophical school of his time that built on the writings of the Greek philosopher Plato. Plato and Neoplatonism saw the universe in starkly dualist terms. There was this world, which was flawed by material and fleshly desire, and the world of forms, the ideal world, which existed on another plane. This world was but a pale reflection of the world of forms. This stark soul-body dualism runs throughout Augustine's writings and his ethics. Everything of this world, everything that could be be termed bodily, was inherently bad. The immaterial world, the world of forms, the world of the soul, of contemplation, was the realm of God and fundamentally good. While Augustine tries at various points to to distance himself from this dualism, because he acknowledges that the world is created by God and must be somehow good, it becomes obvious when you read his works, that he doesn't do a very effective job of this, especially when he talks about sex and sexual desire. Augustine reads the Apostle Paul, and in particular our text for this morning, as justification for his dualist outlook on life. In Augustine's works, every pleasure of the world that is of the body, of the senses, is inherently bad, and sex is the worst of them all. In City of God, Augustine writes, quote, We see then that there are lusts for many things. And yet when lust is mentioned without the specification of its object, the only thing that normally occurs in the mind is the lust that excites the indecent parts of the body, i.e. sex. This lust assumes power not only over the whole body and not only from the outside, but also internally. It disturbs the whole man. When the mental emotion combines and mingles with the physical craving, resulting in a pleasure surpassing all physical delights, so intense is the pleasure that when it reaches its climax, there is almost total extinction of mental alertness. The intellectual senses, as it were, are overwhelmed. In other words, when you're having sex, your mind is farthest from God and focused on the body, which, of course, according to Augustine, is the worst thing possible. 
Augustine goes on to say, Surely a married man would prefer, if possible, to beget children without lust of this kind. (laughs) The ideal sexual encounter for Augustine would be void of physical pleasure because physical pleasure is wrong. And sex, because it is the most pleasurable, is the worst of all. But Augustine's dualism, his detestation for any bodily pleasure, goes farther than this. He chides himself that he cannot control his sexual dreams at night. Any dreaming of sex, even though it's natural and outside his control, is wrong and sinful. He laments that he derives pleasure from eating food. He wishes that he could eat food and sustain his body without any pleasure at all. He writes about this. You can go read it. I'll show you the passages. He doesn't like pleasure that comes from good music because it too is a sensual pleasure. The explicit ideal of Augustine is for all joy to be mental, immaterial, non-sensual. Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation, was an Augustinian monk. He fully embraced Augustine's views on sensual pleasures. Even though Luther advocated marriage over celibacy, he did so only as a means to control his own lusts. He wrote that sex, even in marriage, was bad because it gave him sensual pleasure. The ideal would be no sex at all, but that would leave society without children and leave him without at least a partially acceptable outlet for his sexual urges. This dualist worldview, where the body and its pleasures, all of them, are bad, has had a tremendous impact on Western society. It has shaped how we read passages like the one this morning from Paul. Think about the 19th century obsession with masturbation. Masturbation, until very recently, was seen as a sin. Many churches still see masturbation as a sin. Ostensibly, it was due to a highly dubious reading of an obscure passage in Genesis 38. When you read Genesis 38 in context, however, it's clear that it has nothing at all to do with masturbation. But masturbation led to physical pleasure. It is gratifying the desires of the flesh, and that is why it's so roundly condemned by Christians for centuries. If you derive pleasure from masturbation, it might lead you to want to have sex. And sex, since it's a pleasure of the flesh, like masturbation, is bad. The so-called missionary position in sex was advocated by Christians since it was the quickest and easiest way to have sexual intercourse. And uh, it would lead to the least amount of pleasure, theoretically, and was thought the highest chance of conception. It had the added benefit of being able to be done under the covers with minimal disturbance. (laughs) This notion of sex being inherently bad underlies the common Christian views on sex today. With modern contraception and the use of condoms, the risk associated with sex, both in terms of pregnancy and the transmission of infections, is minimal at best. If people take appropriate precautions, they can have sex without these risks. And yet, sex outside of marriage is roundly condemned by Christians nevertheless. Why? Sex outside of marriage can be heartfelt. It can be a great expression of intimacy. Why the problem with it? If you dig deeply enough, if you interrogate the reasons closely enough, it leads back to Augustine and his dualism. There is something dirty and shameful about sex, or so we're taught. Sex on some level is inherently bad and not godly. It is a pleasure of the flesh. That is what's going on here. That is the primary reason for Christian hang-ups on sex. They are based on, an outdated, on outdated views on sex and the body, all clouded by Augustine's dualism. Here is a case in point. Today you see some conservative Christian pastors who celebrate sex within marriage. 
People are supposed to have sex and enjoy it. When conservative ministers preach this, it makes the local news. It's newsworthy to say that sexual pleasure is okay in a marriage. That goes to show how strongly Augustine's dualism shapes our thinking. It's important to note here that Augustine misreads the Apostle Paul in his writing. When Paul talks about the distinction between flesh and spirit in Galatians 5, he is not talking about a distinction between the material and the immaterial. For Paul, the spirit, pneuma in Greek, was itself a substance. It flows through our bodies and is a part of our bodies. In addition, listen to the list of things that Paul includes as a sin of the flesh. Idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy. All of these things, labeled as of the flesh, are intellectual and emotional. They are not deriving from sensual pleasure. Paul, unlike Augustine, does not create a dualism between the body and everything that is intellectual and immaterial. That comes from Plato and Neoplatonism. Paul's conception of the body is quite different from Augustine's, and is something that I will explore in depth in my sermon for next Sunday. Suffice it to say for now, however, that the hatred of all things bodily, including our enjoyment of food, which we find in Augustine, is not, in fact, biblical. It is not biblical, but it has huge implications for today. Augustine's dualism and our unreflective views on sex and sexuality are not only not biblical, they actually cause great harm, not only to ourselves, but also to the faith and and a right understanding of it. We are taught that sex is bad and something that we should be ashamed of. This goes deep into our psyches and causes serious harm. I remember the first time I ever had sex, back when I was 23. Afterwards, I was so ashamed and felt such self-loathing that I sprinted. Yes, literally, I sprinted out of that guy's apartment. I'm not joking. I ran from it because I felt such deep-seated shame of having enjoyed something sexual for the first time in my life. Now, mind you, this is after I'd already come out of the closet. It took me years not to feel ashamed of sex and sensual pleasure. In that process, I dragged myself over the coals and was racked by suicidal, suicidal ideation. How often do people feel shame over their first sexual encounters? Did you? How did it make you feel? Did it help bring you closer to God? Did it help you in forming healthy, intimate relationships? When I lived in Iowa, the largest student group at Iowa State University was associated with the big Southern Baptist church in town. They preached again and again about the evils of sex, the evils of masturbation. Here were these college students wrestling with their sexual hormones and desires amidst a highly sexualized culture, feeling constant anxiety and guilt over their natural bodily feelings. What did this lead to? It led to students in that group getting married when they were 18, 19, 20 years old. They would leap into a marriage in an effort not to feel shame and guilt over sex and sexual desire. Where are the highest divorce rates in the U.S.? The highest divorce rates in the U.S. are in the so-called Bible Belt, the very same places that emphasize the evils of sex and sexual desire. Not only do our hang-ups on sex lead to shame and unwise marriages, they prevent us from having honest and open conversations about sex. What is the hardest thing, even for a married couple, to talk about? Sex. If you have problems in your sex life in your marriage, do you talk about it? No, probably not. Sex is shameful. Sex is bad. Sex is not to be talked about. 
Sex is of the body. It's about sensual pleasures. God does not like those things, at least according to Augustine. Do you see how this thinking works? Do you see how demonic it can become, how destructive? No wonder why so many people leave Christianity as they become sexual beings. They can't bring their whole selves to church because they will inevitably feel guilt and shame. The first step in any honest Christian conversation about sex must begin with these realities. That sex is everywhere and thoroughly a part of 21st century life. That sex boundaries and expectations do not line up with how we live our lives. That Christian views on sex are not primarily driven by the Bible, but by a soul-body dualism that has its roots in the writings of Augustine of Hippo and others like him. That this dualism leads to all sorts of guilt and shame that actually drives people away from God and alienates them from themselves and their intimate partners. And that finally, the only way we're going to discover a healthy Christian sexual ethic is by telling truth, engaging with these issues, and asking the hard questions about what constitutes ethical Christian behavior and why. We have to see the body, including its desires, as creations of God. Sensual pleasure, including sex, are not bad and sinful. Sex, like anything else, can become bad, and we'll discuss that in future sermons, but it is not bad in and of itself. Sex can be wonderful, blessed, and a gift from God. It can be a spiritual experience and of the Spirit. I hope I've convinced you to take this seriously and to open your hearts and minds to how God might be speaking today. Christianity might be a lot of things, but first and foremost, it must be truth. Our task is to seek after truth, and in terms of sex, that task is long overdue. Now, next week, we will follow up on this with a look at Christian sexual views as they come out of the Bible. What does the Bible actually say about this? What does the Greek actually say in the letters of Paul? What was the framework that Paul was working with? We can't hope to wrestle with what the Bible actually says and how it would be useful with our lives unless we look at that very closely. And then on September 30th in the last sermon, we'll take the implications of all of this and see where it leads us. It'll lead us to some interesting places.